0: Well, may God's grace and peace be with you this evening. If you have a Bible handy, please open to the book of Revelation, chapter 7. Or if you would like to just use the printout in your worship order, feel free to do so. We are continuing our series on the book of Revelation, in which we are following the Lamb of God into the new creation. And this evening we are in Revelation 7, which is... The end of the sixth seal, which we barely cracked last week. Remember that the Lamb of God was found worthy, the only one worthy to go up to the throne of God and to take the sacred scroll from the hand of the one who sat on the throne. And it is the Lamb of God who is opening the seals of this scroll and preaching a seven-point sermon. And we are towards the end of the... Sixth point of his sermon, which is the sixth seal. Last week, we touched on the wrath of the Lamb of God and saw that as the wrath of the Lamb of God broke out against the enemies of God and his people, all heaven broke loose, and those who are enemies of God felt as if all hell had broken loose upon them. And remember how they were crying out to creation Asking creation to crush them. Well, tonight we're going to see a very different response as the grace of the Lamb of God breaks out against His people and for His people. And those who are His people will not cry out to be crushed, but they will cry out to be covered by the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Our sermon text for this evening... Is Revelation 7 1 through 7? If you are willing and able, I invite you to please stand for the reading of God's holy word. The word of God reads After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, "'Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come?' I said to him, "'Sir, you know.' And he said to me, "'These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. "'They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. "'Therefore they are before the throne of God "'and serve him day and night in his temple.' And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading. The preaching of the hearing of his word in all the church says. You may be seated. A question is posed at the end of Revelation 6. As the wrath of the Lamb of God breaks out against the enemies of God, and the enemies of God are fleeing from the face of the one who is on the throne and crying out that even the mountains would fall upon them. The question is posed... Who can stand? And the answer to that question is found in Revelation 7. As the vision continues to unfold, we find that those who can stand are not the enemies of God, but the friends of God, the servants of God. In this vision we see it's the angels who are standing. It is the martyrs who are standing. The presbyters are standing. The saints are standing. All those who have gathered around the throne of God and of the Lamb to worship and praise Him, they are standing even in the moment of His great wrath breaking out against His enemies. They continue to stand. But they only stand for a while because as you saw and heard in the vision, they stand as long as they can. Until they are overwhelmed by the majesty and the glory of God, and then they fall on their faces in worship and praise of who God is. Who can stand when all heaven breaks loose against the enemies of God? Only those who are the friends of heaven. And in this vision and this portion of the vision, John is showing us once again what Jesus showed him. And he shows us that in this vision as things begin to unravel and fall apart there are some people who are held intact and do not lose their standing. They are the ones who are rooted and grounded in the true and living God in the person and work of the Lamb of God. You notice in this vision that From the point of view of the enemies of God, all creation is dissembling. It is disintegrating, falling to pieces. But from the point of view of the servants of God, it is not creation that is disintegrating and falling apart, but God's enemies. In fact, we see that creation is held intact. Creation merely gets out of the way for the judgment of God to break loose. Some people believe that God has no concern for His creation, that God is quite willing and able to annihilate His creation as if it were nothing to Him. And yet we see God preserving His creation, in fact, vindicating His creation. He has no intention of annihilating the world, but simply to sanctify the world, to purify His creation. Creation has been groaning out under sin, waiting for this moment, and now God preserves creation. His judgment, His wrath is targeted upon the enemies of God and His people. The angels are told to preserve the earth, preserve the sky, preserve the sea. The judgment of God breaks out against His enemies. But how does God distinguish between those who are his enemies and those who are his friends? Between those who are rebels and those who are servants? In an echo from the book of Ezekiel 9, we see that these servants of God, these angels, are sent out into the earth to make sure that the servants of God are marked specifically as servants of God. In the vision from Ezekiel 9, if you were to look in the Old Testament, you would see in that vision that the prophet saw a man with a writing kit on his belt and he went out through the city marking people as the people of God and those who were marked were preserved from judgment. That was a mere shadow of things to come. For now these angels go out marking the servants of God throughout all the earth And they're not marking them with a writing kit. It is not with pen and ink that they are marked, but it is with the Holy Spirit who seals them as the people of God and seals them for the day of redemption. The seal of God put on their life indicates that they belong to God and God belongs to them. The distinguishing mark of God's people in the world is not some religious activity. It is not an experience, but it is God's work in their life, specifically God's grace in their life. And the grace of God in our life is seen clearly in the presence of the Holy Spirit who dwells in our hearts. The apostles teach us that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And as God's judgments break out against His enemies throughout all the earth, The Spirit of God is going about applying the work of the redemption of the Lamb of God to all of God's people in every tribe and language and nation and people under heaven. He goes out ahead of God's wrath to ensure that all those who were purchased by the Lamb of God, all who were purchased and ransomed by the blood of the Lamb, will be rescued, will be saved on the day of God's judgment. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit in you that will keep you safe and secure on the day of God's wrath. It is the grace of God in your life that saves you and preserves you from judgment. But how many people are marked? How many people are sealed with this seal? There are people who criticize us, who believe in, the. here's a theological term for you, we believe in particular redemption, meaning that we believe that Jesus died for a specific people, that he died for a particular group of people, a number of people, a list of people, if you will, that he had in mind. I'm coming into the world to rescue and ransom these people that the Father has given me. And there are people who say, oh, you guys believe that only a select few will be saved. And none of us, to my knowledge, ever said a select few. No, we're far more hopeful than that. As we will see, we believe that Christ ransomed so many people with his blood, purchased so many people with his blood, that you can't even put a number on it. We'll see that in just a moment. Well, speaking of numbers, why does the vision give us all of these numbers? 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, until we get to a total of 144,000. Well, that would indicate a small number that people can calculate. So is there a contradiction in the vision? No, because this is not a literal number. This number, the numbers you see there, are symbolic. They are figurative. They are to give us a clear impression that God has come to ransom and redeem all of his people. This is the perfect number of God's people, Israel, the one who wrestled with God and the one who bore the glory of God. These are his people, the complete number of His people will be sealed with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they were purchased with the blood of the Lamb. There's no contradiction in the vision because after we find out that this complete and total number of God's people are sealed, notice what John says. Interesting thing here, by the way. He heard the number of the sealed 144,000. I imagine a large group of people like that could make quite a noise and so he turned and that's what he saw. But notice as you often find in John's Revelation or the Revelation of Jesus to John, John hears one thing but he he often sees another thing. So remember a couple of weeks ago when he heard lion of the tribe of Judah and he turned and what did he see? saw the Lamb of God likewise here he heard the number of the 144,000 he heard the number of all of God's redeemed and he turned to see them and when he turned what did he see he saw a great multitude that no one could number From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. We'll get to what they were wearing and doing in just a moment. But I want you to remember that this is the same group of people mentioned in Revelation 5, 9, and 10. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, where there we learn that the Lamb of God is worthy to take the scroll out of the hand of the Lord God Almighty because he purchased redemption. He purchased redemption for a people for God from every nation, tribe, and people and language. Revelation 5 does not tell us how many were purchased, how many were ransomed, but now in Revelation 7, we find out that it is a great multitude that no one could number. God's grace is greater than our sin. God is not stingy. He is not selfish. He is not chintzy with His grace. He sent His Son into the world to save the world from sin and death. And when Jesus finished his work of redemption and returned to the Father, he didn't say, well, I made redemption possible. I hope they take it. I made it available. I hope someone likes what I've done. That's not what he did. When he finished the work of redemption and ransoming people, he returned to the Father and said, here are the names of all those you have given me. I have lost none of them. I purchased their redemption, here they are. And the Spirit of God is sent out from heaven to go through the earth to all the nations and tribes and peoples and languages to do what? To make sure that all the people for whom Jesus died are signed and sealed with his redemptive work. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. What role does the church play in that? The role we play in that is we gather for worship, we preach the gospel, we go on mission, we bear witness to the world that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the whole world. And it is through the means of gospel preaching and through the means of worship that the Spirit of God works to bring the redemptive work of Christ to all of His people through all space and time in all kinds of places. How many will be saved? Far more than most evangelical Christians believe. A number so great that you can't even put a figure to it. Imagine that. It's a magnificent work of Christ in the world to save a great multitude that no one can even count. What does 144,000 represent? It represents that great multitude that no one can count. It is the perfect number of God's people. Everyone for whom Jesus died, everyone whose salvation was purchased by the Lamb, everyone ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ will be standing before the throne and before the Lamb before it's all said and done. will they be wearing well they will be wearing white robes where have you heard this before white robes when revelation one Jesus appears to John on the island of Patmos and he's wearing a white robe And then you fast forward a little bit to the souls under the altar. And these are the ones who have been martyred. These are the ones whose lives have been sacrificed to God by enemies of God. They are the ones saying, how long, O Lord, until you avenge us? And remember, God gave them white robes. Why? Because they are going to identify with Jesus. They are in Christ. And who are all of these people, a multitude that no one can count? They are also souls under the altar, dressed in white robes. They are the people of God who identify with the Lamb of God. And they are waving palm branches. These palm branches are not signs of peace. In the Jewish economy and Jewish history, when palm branches were waved, it was their way of saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are hailing the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And their song here is, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The Lord saves! That's their song. Imagine being a part of a great multitude that no one can count and everyone knows every word of this song. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the song we sing. That's the song that our brothers and sisters are singing around the throne. That's the song the martyrs and the saints, the presbyters are singing. That's the song of the redeemed. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He can give it to anyone He pleases. He can give it to as many or as few as He wants. He can give it to all or to none. It's His to give or not. And yet we have a great multitude from all tribes and peoples and languages, from every nation, singing salvation belongs to our God and what are they suggesting in the song and he gave it to us now the question should never be well why doesn't God save everyone the question should be why does God save anyone and the answer is because he wants to he does it for the praise of his glorious grace and by the way, if he, withholds, if he withholds salvation from anyone, he does that for the praise of his glorious justice. He's not obligated to save anyone. And yet he is so merciful and gracious that he saves far more people than we can get our minds around. We can't calculate the number of all the peoples through all the ages that... He has purchased, that he has ransomed with the blood of the Lamb of God. And the response to this should not be, well, that doesn't seem right, or that doesn't seem fair, or how come I'm not included, or why, isn't that, why is that guy left out? No, the response to this redemptive work of the Lamb of God should always be the same. And that is we fall down on our faces before the throne of God and we say amen. We say you are right. We agree. This is good. Blessing and honor and wisdom and thanksgiving and power and might be to our God forever and ever. The proper response to the person and work of Jesus Christ and his redemptive work is exactly this. To worship and praise him for all he has done forever and ever. Now, that's not the end of the vision, is it? Imagine if you're feeling a little shaken or... Boggled. Imagine John standing there and seeing this vast multitude and trying to get his heart and mind around all of that. And, and suddenly his concentration is broken by someone who says to him, it happens to be one of the elders. Again, this is what good presbyters do. They like to shake you up a little bit. And so he says to John, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? The elder is not asking for information for himself. He knows who they are. He's not trying to figure it out. He wants John to answer. John, do you know who they are? Do you understand who these people are and how they got here? And John does know and understand, and he just kicks it back and says, Well, you know, I don't need to tell you something you already know. And then the elder answers. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We don't have time to trace all of this out, but I do want to highlight for you one of the really interesting contrasts in this story. If you go back to chapter 6, you find that as the wrath of the Lamb broke out, there is black soot flying out of heaven against the enemies of God, and yet somehow with all that black soot and that, the mountain shaking and all of that disturbance of the peace, these who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb are still wearing white robes which are unblemished and radiant, spotless and clean. Why? Why? Because they were washed in the blood of the Lamb. Does that make sense to you? That something is preserved white in the midst of all that blackness and darkness because it was washed in the blood of the Lamb? Since when does blood make anything clean? Since when does red not stain white? Well, in God's economy, that's precisely how it works because it is the blood of the Lamb that has removed all stain, all blemish, all mar of sin. These have come out of the great tribulation. It's tempting for us to read something like that and perhaps feel cheated in a way. That we haven't gone through a great tribulation like they did. Our heads are still connected to our bodies. Our wrists are not scarred. Our ankles don't hurt. We're well fed. We haven't gone through the trials and tribulations that they did. And we might be tempted to think they deserve a white robe. They deserve a white robe because of all they've suffered. But who are we to expect a white robe? And I understand we're tempted to think in those terms, but that's the flesh talking. That's the old system of works creeping up on us where we think that some people get something from God because they sacrificed more, suffered more, or they deserve it in ways that we don't. But do you see how gracious God is? That for those who suffered greatly, like the martyrs under under the altar, they get a white robe not because they deserved it, not because they earned it or merited that, but because Christ did for them. And the fact that you are clothed in white robes in the presence of God does not mean that you deserved it, that you worked harder, sacrificed more, suffered longer, sweated. You didn't merit this any more than they did. But Christ did on your behalf. We are wearing white robes That come to us from the white robe of Christ. It's his robe. It's his garment. And we are clothed in him on the basis of his merits. Of his person and work. And not our own. And by the way, we've all been through some kind of trial and tribulation, haven't we? I'm not going to get in a comparison game. None of us have yet suffered as much as some of our brothers and sisters throughout the world. I would recognize that. But you've suffered in ways that they haven't suffered. We've all suffered in ways that help us to identify with the sufferings of Christ. We've all gone through trials and tribulations in our lives, things that have tested our faith, stretched us, Things that have caused us to wonder how long, oh Lord, why, oh Lord, where are you, God, when it hurts? We've all been through things like that. We've all faced trials and tribulations that have taken our hearts and squeezed them and compressed them. Things that have made us lose sleep. We carry ulcers in our bellies and heartache in our hearts and shadows haunt our minds we can't escape things we've experienced from the past why because life is hard and it's messy and for those of us who are trying to follow the lamb into the new creation we find that it's full of traps we find that it's even more difficult for us because we've got more at stake than just making it through the next hour or the next month We all carry heartache and pain in our lives and and no one should say, well, it's okay because you haven't suffered as much as that guy in South Africa or that guy in the Middle East or that woman in South America. God doesn't look at his people that way. If he looked at his people that way, he would say, well, none of you suffered as much as my son suffered, so stop your whining. But he doesn't do that. He takes all of our tears, all of our sorrows and he puts our tears in his bottle and he sees that our sufferings are related to the sufferings of his son Jesus how do we make it through the world? We make it through the world by suffering, through sorrows we're following the lamb into the new creation, bearing our crosses every step of the way the cross is heavy it's painful We wonder, will we ever make it to the end? Will we get there? And we will get there. But we will get there by the grace and mercy of the Lamb of God. We're following the Lamb. And that doesn't mean we're going to have the most dynamic worship services or the most comfortable lives or that we're always going to have every little thing we want We're following the Lamb, which means that we are going to have grief and sorrow to bear. And there will be blood, sweat, and tears shed. We're following the Lamb. We identify with Him. And then there are these amazing promises revealed to us. In the midst of your sorrows and difficulties, whatever they are, and I know that that most of you have a variety of things that you're dealing with even tonight, Remember these promises, that you're not just standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, but you are serving Him day and night in His temple. What a privilege to be that close to the throne. What a privilege to be gathered in the presence of God in the midst of our sorrows with all of our tears and concerns to still be there serving God day and night in his temple. Here are the promises. God does not sit back passively and watch all of this unfold as if he didn't care. Notice what he does. The one who sits on the throne, so the sovereign Lord of everything, shelters his people with his presence. The word shelter that's used here is the same word used to describe Jesus, the Word, who became flesh and dwelt among us. He, sheltered among us he dwelt among us he pitched his tent among us the sovereign Lord who sits on the throne shelters his people with his presence he cast his tent over them why so that they may dwell in his presence they may stay in his house forever And as he pitches his tent over his people, the promises continue to unveil and unfold. They shall hunger no more. They shall thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them anymore, nor any scorching heat. He shelters us with his presence. Think of the contrast here When the Lamb of God, when the wrath of the Lamb of God broke out against the enemies of God, it caused God's enemies to run and hide and to cry out for death. It caused them to ask creation to crush them. But now that the grace of the Lamb of God is breaking out, it causes God's people to come and to sing and to shout for joy. And it causes them to ask the shepherd to shelter them under the train of his garment, under the tent of his presence. Why is all of this possible? Why is all of this a reality for the people of God? The vision tells us because the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This isn't wishful thinking. This is the reality of the gospel embodied, fleshed out by the Lamb of God. And do you see, once again, the contrast, the the tension that these images create for us? We learn that the Lamb is the shepherd. And in the language, and the language of the scriptures, to get your mind around this, a shepherd is not simply the guy who carries a pouch and a rod and a staff and takes care of little animals. The shepherd is the king. He is the Lord of his people. And this is how our king and Lord responds to us in our hour of need. As he rises from his throne to serve us as we draw near to his throne to serve him. And that's the beauty of this covenantal relationship we have with him. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for his rod and his staff comfort us. The Lord seeks and saves the lost and he strengthens the weak. He sends us on mission as sheep among wolves. And yet, we return from the mission and enter his gates with thanksgiving in our hearts. We enter his courts with praise. And what do we say? This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and we will be glad in it. I know that some of you are carrying burdens that feel far too heavy for you to carry. I know you've cried yourself into dehydration, and you are thirsty. I know your flesh is weak. I know that your hearts hunger for far more than you can find in this world. And I want to remind you, as a fellow sheep among God's sheep, among God's people... That we will find all we need, all we could ever ask for, all we could ever hope and dream in the person and work of the Lamb of God. We've got to keep moving to his throne. We've got to keep coming and centering our lives on this. I confess to a brother this week that I often slip into anxiety and despair over the things of life. But nothing has helped to reorient my heart and mind like the visions we've seen in the book of Revelation. To know that the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb cares for me, cares for you, and is actively pursuing us and bringing us home safely. Well, this is the kind of thing that brings joy to a heart and helps us to sleep well at night. I hope you find comfort in these gospel truths this evening. If you will, please stand with me as we pray. O oh Lord, how lovely is your dwelling place! Our soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. Our heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself. For she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, our King and our God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praises. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose hearts are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of weeping and tears, they make it a place of springs. The early rain covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear our prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed one. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. We would rather be doorkeepers in the house of our God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. And no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. And we ask you, O God, to give us the grace to trust you, as the psalmist indicates. For the good of your people and for the glory of God, we pray. Amen.